in one hand or on the side where you can see it. And then this page which indicates verse 3, it also includes uh, the page that has the microstructure, verse 2, and verse 3, the fifth month. All right, you're all with me? All right, in verse 2, we had talked about the phrase, the 13th year of Josiah, in which we were able to date Jeremiah's call or the beginning of his prophetic ministry to the 13th year of King Josiah. And since Josiah began to reign in 640 B.C., we can precisely date the 13th year of his reign to 627-626 B.C. Now, when we come to the third verse, we notice that, uh, as we discussed last time, 626 B.C. is the beginning of Jeremiah's career and the fifth month of the 11th year of Zedekiah is plus or minus the last year of Jeremiah's prophetic career. So in this uh, two-verse superscription, actually four-verse superscription, we have an inclusio of the career of the prophet, at least an inclusio of his prophetic activity. He was obviously born before 626, and he dies after 586, but... For all intents and purposes, his prophetic speech has been uh, completed within this period. All right, so from 626 to 586 B.C. Now, the fifth month is the final month of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar. And you will notice that that siege which led to the final destruction of Jerusalem began in January of 587 B.C. How do we know that it is that precisely dated? Because of the Chronicles of the Chaldean Kings. This marvelous translation of an Akkadian uh, tablet that indicated the careers of the Chaldean Kings, namely from Nabopolassar, Nebuchadnezzar's father, all the way down to Nabonidus, the last of the Chaldean monarchs, or Babylonian monarchs. So because of that translation, in 1956, we've been able to very carefully date more accurately these events, even more accurately than the Bible does in certain instances. And so we know from Nebuchadnezzar's record that he inaugurated the final siege of Jerusalem in January of 587 and ended that siege in June or July, the fourth month of 586. Now, these are not months as we count months. These are months according to the Jewish or Chaldean calendar, and so they are counted differently than than the way we count them. But nonetheless, the siege ended in the fourth month. Now, you look at Jeremiah 1.3, and he says, in the fifth month the exile of Jerusalem began, or the exile of Jerusalem was attained. And that is exactly what we know from the the Chronicles of the Chaldean Kings. 
in the fifth month, that is July to August of 586 B.C., the systematic deportation and exile of the people of Judea began. In other words, the siege was over in the fourth month, and then they began to raise the city and carry out the captives in the fifth month. So from the archaeological record, we actually have a verification of this uh, note here in Jeremiah 1.3. That is the chronicles of the Chaldean kings from the archaeological record. And, of course, that's not a biblical record. That's a historical record. That confirms what the inspired prophet says here in this third verse. All right, now what about Jeremiah? What can we say about his own biography? We can say a good bit, as we indicated last time. We have more biographical information about the prophet Jeremiah than we have of any other prophet in the Old Testament. We have a very full picture of the bulk of his prophetic career. Now, in the first verse, you will notice that he tells us a good bit about himself. He tells us the name of his father. He tells us the name of the group of people with whom he was associated, namely the priest. He he tells us where he came from, Anathoth. And that was in the land of Benjamin. All right, those are all very interesting statements, and so we want to take a look at them. First of all, geographically, we want to note the location of Anathoth. Where was it? So you have your map there, and you'll notice if you can find Jerusalem on your map, just look above Jerusalem and slightly to the right, northeast of Jerusalem, you will see the location of ancient Anathoth, the village from which Jeremiah arose. Now, that little village today is called in Arabic Anatah, and you have that on your outline. It is actually a very interesting little village because it is, or at least it has been, the center of the almond-growing industry in Israel. It's a particularly uh, well Uh, situated village and uh, valley, and it has a kind of climate which is ideal for growing almonds. And although, and this uh, uh, symbol will recur in uh, Jeremiah's uh, discussion. In fact, in this first chapter, uh, the Lord will ask him what he sees, and Jeremiah will see, I see an almond tree. This is an allusion to something that was in his childhood background, because even in Jeremiah's day, This was an almond-growing area. Well, what's so significant about the almond tree? Any of you who have ever been through the San Joaquin Valley in central California, at the end of January, beginning of February, will know exactly what is so spectacular about the almond tree. It is the first fruit tree to bloom in the spring, and it blooms with such beauty that it is nearly as spectacular as the cherry blossoms on the Washington Washington Mall in our nation's capital. They are gorgeous. Uh, They vary in hue from bright white to slightly pink. They don't last very long, just like the cherry blossoms don't, but nonetheless, they create a great display of beauty and a sign that spring is about to come, better than Punxsutawney Phil. All right, so this this little village has significance for several reasons. Another thing about Anathoth is that on a clear day, if you were facing southwest, 
You could stand on one of the bluffs around the village and look to the horizon and see Jerusalem in the distance. In other words, Jeremiah, as a boy, was likely to have been able to see the city of the capital of his nation, namely Jerusalem, and perhaps he could even make out the outline of the Temple of Solomon. All right, now what about this uh, mention that he's in the land of Benjamin? The significance of the land of Benjamin. You can see that on your map. It's labeled. It's written right over there uh, between Jerusalem and uh, just above Anathoth and Jerusalem. Benjamin was one of the tribes of Israel. It's one of the surviving tribes of Israel in Jeremiah's day. There are only two surviving tribes of Israel in Jeremiah's day. Why is that so? Marge, why is that so? Well, the tribes in the northern kingdom were all taken away. And what year was that? Mark, can you help her? What year was that? What year did the northern tribes disappear? How many of them were there, Marge, that disappeared? There were ten. How many are left? How many are left after the ten disappeared? Not of the ten, but how many are left? Two. Two. What are their names? You've named one. Benjamin and Judah, the two that are left, the remnant of the destruction of Israel, the northern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin, actually the surviving southern kingdom, the southern kingdom of Judah, consisted of those two tribes from the time of Rehoboam on down. All right, so uh, we're still looking for that date of the destruction of the northern kingdom. Anyone? 722. Thank you, Ben. 722-21 B.C. And who destroyed them? Ben, the Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel and carried them away into captivity and dispersed them throughout the Assyrian Empire. And so we have the so-called dispersion of the Jews throughout the Assyrian Empire. All right. Now, in that first verse, Jeremiah says that he is a part of a family of priests in Anathoth. Where did these priests in Anathoth come from. Okay? Well, were they from uh, the Levites? They are obviously part of the tribe of Levi, that is true. But you would think that the priests of Levi would be centered in Jerusalem, ministering at the temple. But here we have this group of priests who are up in Anathoth. Where do they come from? Come from the line of Abiathar. Now this takes you two years back to our series on the life of David. And what do you know about Abiathar? What do you remember about Abiathar? Okay, that's the reason I asked you. You have a keen memory for this. Yes, I do remember the name. You do remember the name. <laughs> Everybody else is breathing a sigh of relief. Okay, you, at least you remember the name. All right, anybody add anything besides the name? Was he that good priest who helped David? He helped David. When did he help David? What was the story in which he gave aid to David? Is 
bread. No. No. When David is fleeing from Absalom, he accompanies David along with another priest named Zadok and goes out to the east side of Jerusalem. But David then tells him to go back. Okay, But Abiathar was actually a survivor. He survived the massacre of the priests at Nob in 1 Samuel 22. Remember Doeg? The uh, hatchet man of Saul, he massacred the 80 priests of Nob, and Abiathar survived. And that's how he became the priest associated with David's rise and uh, occupation of Jerusalem. But although he went with David in Absalom's rebellion, David sent him back to Jerusalem to maintain the ark within the temple, even while Absalom was occupying the capital in uh, in David's exile. And when uh, David came back, Abiathar continued as the priest there until Adonijah. Adonijah. Who's Adonijah? Who's Adonijah? Son of David. What do you know about Adonijah? He's like his brother. The two A twins. This is a double A team, right? A and A. Absalom and Adonijah. Absalom rebelled. Adonijah rebelled. Adonijah set up a rebellion as death was approaching David, and he wanted to unseat. Or contest? Lisa? Not David. Solomon. Solomon, correct. So, Adonijah's rebellion against David's successor, namely Solomon. And who joins him? Abiathar joins Adonijah. And when Solomon squelches that rebellion, and how does he do it? He has Adonijah executed, doesn't he? Because he wanted to seize David's uh, uh, bed warmer, shall we say, a bishag. And uh, that was the same as wanting to assault or to take the throne away from Solomon himself. And so consequently, he was guilty of treason as well as rebellion. And Joab was assisting him in this. So uh, Solomon uh, executed Adonijah and eventually had Joab executed as well. But because Abiathar had aided Adonijah, did Solomon execute him? No, he did not. And he did not execute him because of what Abiathar had done to aid David in the rebellion against Absalom. In other words, because Abiathar had come to his father's aid, then Solomon spared him. But he banished him. Where did he banish him? To Anathoth. He banished him to Anathoth, and there was a group of priestly descendants of the line of Abiathar, from whom Hilkiah arises and Jeremiah is born. So that's the significance of this note here, that he is of the priests of who were in Anathoth. They came to be there almost 
300 years before when their ancestor, Abiathar, was banished to Anathoth uh, and banished from the priesthood. All right, any questions about uh, any of that? Scott. Descendants of Abiathar. Abiathar, no, the, the line that continues in Jerusalem is the line of Zadok, because that is the line that Solomon anoints to continue on. See, Zadok had also been involved in the priesthood during David's uh, lifetime. He accompanied Abiathar on the east, eastern trek out of Jerusalem with the Ark of the Covenant, and David sent them both back. So Zadok remains on David's death and Solomon's succession, but Abiathar is banished. So the priesthood is going to come through the line of Zadok. Go ahead. I'm sorry, I meant priests that were in Anathoth. Are they descended from Abiathar? No. Yes, they are descendants from Abiathar. Okay, but but the what what's ministering in Jerusalem is the priesthood of Zadok. All right, now turning to the last page of that outline where you have the uh, narrative study, I only mention Elena de Peta because of her remarkable new work on the book of Jeremiah. Uh, she is a professor of Old Testament at the Catholic University at Louvain in Belgium and has written most of her material in French. I've just finished translating the first volume there that you see there myself that is translating for myself and my own purposes but nonetheless, uh, this woman has done some remarkable new narrative work on the book of Jeremiah, and she is upsetting the old liberal critical approaches to the book. And I'm quite interested and actually I'm quite excited about what she's up to. And <clears throat> therefore, I am following her career quite closely and struggling to translate from French into English as well as my lexicons can help. At any rate. There is a new wave of Jeremiah studies coming, and it is coming from this brilliant Hebraist. She's an excellent Hebraist. She knows her Hebrew Bible. She's also very good with the Greek text. Anyway, I mention her because uh, she is groundbreaking a new way forward in Jeremiah's studies. Now, I've noted that we know more about Jeremiah than any of the Old Testament prophets, which means that we have a... Uh, erstwhile biographical frame. We have a narrative frame. In other words, we can take a look at the career of the prophet through the book that he writes and look at the plan of the book of Jeremiah on the basis of a narrative analysis or a narrative plot diagram. Just like you were reading a book or you were working, looking at a good movie or uh, attending a good play, there would be a plot to the story. So we have a storyline with the book of Jeremiah. We have the story of the life of Jeremiah and how that life interfaces with other events. And we're going to see those other events in more detail later on this evening. But just for purposes of outline, we want to take a look at a couple of the things that you look at or the things you think about when you think about a narrative plot or you think about a story plot or when you think about the plot of a novel or a book you're reading. 
First thing you have is the scene, namely how, where is the location of this particular story? We're on location. Many film directors said on location at Stockton, California, if it's high noon, or the Death Valley, if it's the big country, or whatever you happen to be. We're on location. All right, so the scene here for Jeremiah's uh, narrative is Judah and Jerusalem. Now, we're going to have scene shifts. So our scene uh, panorama is going to shift. We're going to shift for the focus on Egypt. We're going to shift from time to time to focus on Babylon. We're going to shift from time to time to focus on Carchemish, as we'll see later this evening, and Carchemish is in Syria, or ancient Aram, or Aramea. Now, in addition to where we are on location with respect to the story, then we want to know what setting we're in. That is, what setting in time or history we're in. And we're in the setting of the ancient Near East, particularly within the period that we describe in verses 1 to 4 of the superscription of chapter 1, 627, 26 to 587, 86 B.C. That's the time frame of the setting of this story from the book of Jeremiah. Any good story, any good movie, well, any good old movie, modern movies don't know anything about this kind of thing. You have to develop character. You have to have characterization. In other words, you have to uh, expand the, uh, the inner emotions and the actions of the people that are playing the role. And so we're going to use that same kind of pattern and think about characterization of the players in the book of Jeremiah. What is Jeremiah's character? What is it, What are his emotions? What is his state of movement? How does he function? How does he relate to others around him, to the, to the historical events that are occurring in his time, and most importantly, to the word of God that comes to him? And then beside Jeremiah, there is Barak, and then there's Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, and there's Uriah, the prophet just like Jeremiah, who is killed while Jeremiah is spared. Why is Uriah killed? Well, we want to take that up later on. Then there are the kings, Josiah and Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, Zedekiah. And then there are the invaders, Nebuchadnezzar and the Nebuchadnezzar who is one of the chief commanders of Nebuchadnezzar's army. And then we have the nefarious characters. We have the antagonists of uh, <clears throat> Jeremiah and uh, those who are his friends. Every uh, characterization story has those that are, so to speak, for the hero and those that are opposed to the hero. So the antagonists here include Pasher and Hananiah. And then we have the pharaohs of Egypt who also play a role, Necho II and Hophra and Gedaliah and Ahikam and Chaphan who come after the destruction of Jerusalem. In fact, Gedaliah is the governor appointed by Nebuchadnezzar when he destroys the city. All right, so we're not going to go into detail on that. We just simply know we have a whole list of characters. We don't have a cast of thousands, so to speak. This isn't the Mill's Ten Commandments. But nonetheless, we do have a cast of several, and these are interesting characters because in many ways we can flesh them out to a degree on the basis of what is given to us in the text of the book of Jeremiah. But we must not forget God. God is the chief character. He is the character behind the scenes. This is not Greek drama, but we could say this is a deus ex machina. And he is not ex machina. He is very much involved in the activity that's going on in this narrative. For God, indeed, is the sovereign controller of all the scene, all the setting, and all the characters.
But there is another character. There is another character with whom we must come to grips. And we must come to grips with the future eschatological figure who comes off of the pages of the book of Jeremiah as one who, like Jeremiah, will be a weeping prophet. A weeping prophet. And like Jeremiah, he too will undergo a passion, a passion of arrest and trial and imprisonment and nearly death. All right, so we will be focusing upon this future eschatological figure as we consider the figure of Jeremiah as if to note that there is a mirror relationship between Jeremiah and this future figure of eschatological deliverance. And of course, that's how a Christian reads the Old Testament, isn't it? Christian always reads the Old Testament looking for Jesus. Or are you Jews? Are you merely Jews? And you read the Old Testament for devotions to help you cope, to make you a better person, to put in your time with your quiet time. Any pagan can read the Bible that way. But you see, a Christian reads the Bible the way Jesus taught his disciples to read the Old Testament. Do you remember what he said to his disciples on the Emmaus Road in Luke 24? He opened to them the law, the prophets, and the writings, and showed how they witnessed to him. You can do no less as you read, nor can I as I teach. Jeremiah is a mirror of Jesus. Okay. Now, the plot conflict is the way the story unfolds. Every movie that you like unfolds in terms of little tensions, little conflicts that help move the story along. It's the same thing true here in the story of Jeremiah. We have the initial rising sequence, which is going to reach a climax in this story. That rising sequence is the clash of the nation of Judah with God, namely the clash of sin and idolatry. And the the sequence to that is the clash of Judah with the nations, the nations who are going to bring the wages of sin upon Judah, namely death and destruction. There's your initial sequential plot conflict, the conflict between a disobedient people and a sovereign and holy God. Now, the climax, of course, of that that conflict is going to come to its peak at the sieges of Jerusalem. Notice that I put the plural there, the sieges of Jerusalem. How many sieges of Jerusalem do we have by Nebuchadnezzar? Three. Three. I still can't hear you. Three. Three is right. We have three sieges. We have more than one. We've talked already about the final one, 586. That's the third in the sequence. In other words, that's the one three strikes and you're out, as Nebuchadnezzar says. I've had enough of you. I've already been here twice before, and you still don't get the message. 
So the third time is no more. I'm not coming back. And because I'm not coming back, I'm raising this city to the ground. All right. So that's the climactic crisis in Jeremiah's career. And in fact, he's prophesying it. He's living through it. He's going to existentially have to endure it. Narrative ripples. In other words, the ripples of the sieges are the ripples of an ongoing story which reaches its denouement in 586 and the smoke that ascends from the burning temple of Solomon and the city of David. Now, the following following sequence after the crisis and the climax is, in fact, the destruction of the city in 586 and the conclusion, how this story runs out at its end, is Judah going off to Babylon and Jeremiah going off to Egypt. Double exiles. Double exiles, one in Asia, one in Africa. The people of God dispersed among the nations. Do you see a foreshadowing there? You see God, in a way, preparing the time for when the gospel of that land, the gospel born in that land, will go to the nations, and Judah and Jerusalem will be important no more. No more. Because what is important now that the gospel has gone to the nations is the bride of Christ, the church of Jesus among the nations. Well, you can chew on that a little bit. I will enlarge upon it later on. The future, the future of this story, the future of this story is the eschatological vector. The future of this story is God himself coming into human history. The future of this story is redemptive historical. That is, the things that begin here in Jeremiah's day are going to be completed in the eschatological day of the eschatological Jeremiah, who is the Lord Jesus Christ and his nation, his people, his body, which is not Israel. It is not Judah. It is not Jerusalem. It is heaven. Better than ever Judah and Jerusalem could ever have been is that land is that body is that assembly is that holy people holy convocation unto the savior of that body all right now do you have any questions about any of those observations scott as we go along, I trust. <laughs> but but if I disappoint you, by all means, uh, call me to repentance. Now, <clears throat> we're done with the packet for the first week, so you can set that aside. Now, I trust that you haven't unpacked the uh, packet for tonight yet. It still has a paper clip on it. 
So uh, go ahead and take the paper clip off, and you will notice that there is an order of pictures and maps. I want you to separate the pictures and the maps. <clears throat> so put the pictures on one side of you in an empty chair and put the maps in the other side of you in an empty chair, and that way you won't get them confused, and you'll be able to look at them when we come to them, and I, uh, I draw them to your attention. Now, that will leave in your hand the three pages of what's called the Life of Jeremiah handout number two. That's what you want to keep in your hand uh, as we go. Now, I've given you the background of the uh, international scene. That is the collapse of the Assyrian Empire in the time of Jeremiah, the rise of the Babylonian Empire, contest with Egypt, Judah sandwiched in between Egypt and Babylon, Nabopolassar's revolt. Nabopolassar is the father of Nebuchadnezzar. Egypt's response to the fall of Assyria and Nebuchadnezzar's response to Egypt and Judah. Now, those names and dates that are there are background for you. Uh, This is not an exam. This is just information to help you understand what's going on in the book. Which brings us down on the second page to the uh, to the header called Shifting Eras, and you see the three dates, 609, 605, and 586 B.C. Now, our previous discussion of Jeremiah 1, 2 to 3 has indicated that there is a more than 40-year career for this prophet, beginning in the 13th year of Josiah, 627-26 B.C., and concluding in the 11th year of Zedekiah, 587-86 B.C. So approximately 40 years, plus or minus, for this period of the story and the narrative of the prophet Jeremiah. But beyond this biblical period is the international shifting of the politics of the world in this 40-year era. In fact, there is significant world-changing political shift going on outside of Judah and Jerusalem, which is going to squeeze Judah and Jerusalem like a vice. And the reaction of the kings and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem to those international shifts is going to determine her future. And so we need to understand what's going on in this broader international paradigm. Jeremiah will witness the collapse of the once mighty Assyrian Empire and the ascendancy of upstart Babylonia. As he stands on the portal of the unfolding narrative of Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian rising empire, so to the prophet Daniel, Daniel will narrate the shifts in imperial power from Babylon to Persia to Greece to Rome and all. All overshadowed, all of those empires overshadowed by the majestic fifth monarchy of Daniel chapter 2, which hovers above the canopy of history, cloaking the present and the future timeline of the story of mankind. Jeremiah and Daniel are contemporaries. As Jeremiah 46, verse 2, and Daniel 1, verse 1 testify, 
Though they never mention one another, nevertheless, they are mouthpieces of God projecting the near and far progress of the kingdom of heaven, antithetically positioned to the kingdoms of this world. Jeremiah is the portal. He is the gateway. Daniel is the full vista. He is the full panorama of the Son of God, who is the Son of Man, and his everlasting imperium, his everlasting kingdom, the kingdom of God in time and in eternity. And I will suggest to you that Daniel ends with the Roman power and the Antichrist because there is nothing more. There is nothing more. All is foreshadowed and embedded and implicit in that paradigm. And so you don't need to worry about the revival of the Roman Empire in two years or ten years or a thousand years. It's already been said. It's been said and done. That's the reason Daniel doesn't go beyond Rome, because everything after Rome is just as Rome itself. Ebbing and flowing, waxing and waning, horror, horrible in brutality, imperious in tyranny. It is the same thing until... The Antichrist himself appears. You don't need to worry about anything in between. You've already been told. All right. We are able then to use some of the outline material that we used a year ago to trace the historical context of the book of Daniel. And so you may recognize some of that material in this second handout for the book of Jeremiah that I've given you tonight. But in brief... The age of Jeremiah and Daniel is the age of the demise of Assyria and the rise of Babylon and the nemesis or spoiler Egypt who becomes the ally of the dying Assyria at her nadir even as she becomes the enemy, that is Egypt becomes the enemy of Babylon at her zenith. And sandwiched amidst this international triangle of intrigue, punch and counterpunch, fire, blood and death, squeezed amidst the mighty secular imperiums is tiny Judah, remnant Judah, foolish and rebellious Judah. There are three watershed dates which mark the shifting transition in the story of the ancient Near East in the days of the prophet Jeremiah. 609, 605, 586 B.C. You have them on your outline. 609 B.C. That is the world's final clash with Assyria. And the vice which crushes Assyria and her ally Egypt in the jaws of Babylon also claims the life of Josiah, king of Judah. The transition from Assyria to Babylon is concluded in 609 B.C. No more Assyria. Never again Assyria after 609. 605 B.C. is the world's final clash with Egypt. 
and the blow delivered by Babylon at Carchemish to Pharaoh Necho reverberates in Jerusalem as Nebuchadnezzar besieges the city, pilfers the temple, and deports Daniel and his friends and others. Babylon is now uncontested ruler of Mesopotamia, as well as Syria, Palestine in 605 BC, Egypt is vanquished. And Judah's king Jehoiakim is a client king, a puppet king of the Babylonian Imperium in 605 BC. 586 BC is the world's final clash with Judah. The once mighty kingdom of David and Solomon is reduced to rubble and ashes by Babylon's Nebuchadnezzar. No Davidic monarch will sit on the throne in Jerusalem ever again after the capture and binding and blinding of King Zedekiah. The transition from the earthly kingdom of Israel begins as smoke rises from the ashes of Solomon's temple in 586 B.C. Josiah, 609, Jehoiakim, 605, Zedekiah, 586. You will observe their names in Jeremiah's superscription. Chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 contain the names that are at the keys of these three dates. And these three dates are not only national, they are international shifts in the fortunes of the nations and Judah. We observe their names and we observe the summary of Jeremiah's era in the three kings whose reigns mark the transition points in the history of the kingdoms of this present evil age. The story of the kingdom of Judah interfaces with the story of the kingdoms of this world. And that is what Jeremiah 1, 2 to 3 is really all about. Map number one, and keep that in front of you as you look at the story of the maps on your outline. You might want to range the map just above uh, <clears throat> that header. We want to look a little more in detail at these shifting international events, <clears throat> and we'll use the illustrated map in order to do that, beginning with the year 626 B.C. Now you'll notice on the box that's attached on the map to Babylon that the box reads Babylon freed by Nabopolassar in 626 B.C. Now for those of you that uh, uh, haven't been with us before, Nabopolassar is the father of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, 626 B.C. is also the date of of Jeremiah's call. Yes, interesting, isn't it? So here we have an international date, 626, which is the rise of Nabopolassar, King of Babylon. In other words, this is the beginning of the rise of the Babylonian Empire with the rise of Nabopolassar in Babylon. 
the same time that Jeremiah himself is called, and we're going to have an interface, we're going to have an interrelationship between Babylon and Jeremiah, particularly Nabopolassar's son, Nebuchadnezzar and Jeremiah. In other words, this book of Jeremiah is going to bring the two into interrelationship. So it's somewhat auspicious that the, the dates coalesce in their careers. Now, this is also another auspicious date. Because if you, I I don't want you to uh, rustle your papers and go backwards, but if you look back to the first sheet with the the decline of Assyria, you will notice that 626 is the date of the death of the last major Assyrian emperor, Ashurbanipal II. And if you look at your pile of pictures, the first picture on the top of your pile is a picture of Ashurbanipal out lion hunting. The Assyrian monarchs were famous for hunting lions. In fact, they hunted them nearly to extinction in Mesopotamia. They uh, regarded themselves as as, uh, great macho men as they went out in their chariots and even sometimes stood down out of their chariots and looked a lion right in the eye as they put the arrow between its uh, eyes or whatever. Uh, Nonetheless, you get this kind of iconography or artwork from the Assyrian monuments that's actually a, 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 a slab from Ashurbanipal's temp, uh, palace that was uncovered in the 19th century at ancient Nineveh by a British explorer. All right, so Ashurbanipal dies in 626. Nabopolassar rises to power in 626. Jeremiah is called to his prophetic ministry in 626. Ashurbanipal's death is the beginning of the end for the mighty Assyrian Empire because Assyria has been severely wounded and is hemorrhaging. She is on the brink of death. She has been wounded by a rebellion of Ashurbanipal's brother, who was king of Babylon from 652 to 648. And for four years, those two brothers fought a civil war in which the one brother, namely the king of Babylon, rebelled against his older brother, Ashurbanipal, and tried to bring Babylon into prominence as an independent power. Ashurbanipal sent wave after wave of his army against Babylon, and it took him four years to conquer the city, and the cost was the debilitation and the, uh, the loss of, uh, of, of vitality in the Assyrian military. In other words, the war to subdue Babylon from 652 to 648 cost Assyria her virility, cost her her vitality, cost her her military strength, and left her frontiers vulnerable. Her frontiers to the north and particularly to the east, the eastern foe of the Elamites in modern-day Iran, the northeastern foes of the Medes, in northeastern modern-day Iraq and the northern foes of the Scythians coming down from the borders and the steppes of Russia. In other words, concentrating on Babylon caused Assyria to pull her forces away from her frontier garrisons, and that meant that her frontiers were collapsing in upon her and she could not defend, defend her own life. Well, Ashurbanipal conquers Babylon in 648, and you can see that in the little box below 
Babylon, but the Babylonians bide their time. From 648 to 626, the Babylonians wait and wait and wait. They wait for the complete unraveling of Assyria. They wait for the complete weakening of Assyria. They await for Assyria to be drained so that they can pay Assyria blood for blood. And that moment arises, <coughs> arrives when Ashurbanipal dies. At the shift in leadership in Nineveh, Nineveh, which is at the top of the map, Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire, at the shift in leadership, namely the death of Ashurbanipal, there is a shift in political climate. And Nabopolassar capitalizes on that political shift and organizes a political and military backlash against his Assyrian overlords. Nabopolassar from 626 will launch one campaign after another up the Tigris and Euphrates River with a goal of toppling and unraveling Assyrian hegemony, capturing the queen cities of the Assyrian uh, <coughs> Empire, namely Asher and Nineveh itself, and catapulting Assyria into dust and death. The first showdown. The first major showdown is 616 B.C., and you can see that in the box, which is just above, the, just to the left of the letter B in Babylonia on that map. The first showdown is 616 B.C., which indicates a clash between Babylon and the combined forces of Assyria and Egypt, a clash with Nabopolassar's Babylonian army. Who is the Egyptian leader of this campaign to uh, buck up and reinforce Assyrian arms? He is Semeticus I, or sometimes simply called Somtik I. And you'll notice his picture is the second picture in your pile of pictures. Now, Semeticus I had risen to fame in Egypt as the first pharaoh to return Egypt to the rule of a native Egyptian. Before Semeticus takes rule in Egypt, Egypt is under the control of the Nubians or the Sudanese. For over a hundred years, Egypt was controlled by black Africans, not native Egyptians. And so <clears throat> Semeticus I succeeds in driving them out, but he also succeeds in ending the Assyrian interference in Egypt. In fact, Ashurbanipal himself had marched all the way to Egypt and up the Nile to Thebes or modern-day Luxor in 663 and had ravaged the nation. He had to retreat because he can support his supply lines that far away from Nineveh. But nonetheless, Ashurbanipal himself had been to Egypt and back, and it was Semeticus I who capitalized on his withdrawal, reunited Egypt around a native Egyptian monarch, an Egyptian pharaoh, and established the famous what's called 26th Sate dynasty in Egypt. Well, why? Would Semeticus I of Egypt join his former enemy? Remember, Assyria had conquered Egypt. Assyria had plundered Egypt. Even within Semeticus' lifetime it had happened. So why would he join with his former enemy to go up against Babylon? 
because Semeticus understands politics and he understands power and he understands the force of military might and he knows that the rising star in the ancient Near East isn't Assyria. The falling star is Assyria. The rising star is Babylon. He understands what's coming up from Babylon and he wants to stop it or he wants to give it pause because if Assyria crumbles... If Assyria crumbles, what does Egypt lose? It loses an ancient enemy? No. It loses a buffer state. It loses a territory that is between Egypt and Babylon. And Semeticus does not want Babylon on his doorstep. So the way to keep Babylon from his doorstep is to keep Assyria alive and well as long as possible. And that's the reason he marches across the Arabian desert in 616 in order to join the Assyrians to try to stop the rising Babylonian threat. Well, this invasion of Egypt and alliance with Assyria against Nabopolassar does not succeed in 616, although the battle results in probably a draw. Both armies retreat from the field without winning a a victory one way or the other. Nonetheless, Semeticus I must withdraw to Egypt. He must go back home. And that means that the inevitable march to destruction of Assyria predicted by the prophet Nahum will level the capital of Nineveh four years later. Now you will notice the little box there above Nineveh indicates that the Babylonians and the Medes had destroyed the city of Nineveh as the prophet Nahum had predicted. In fact, the book of Nahum is entirely about the destruction of Nineveh and the horror of the Assyrian Empire, its brutality, its terrorism, etc., its judgment at the hands of God. Uh, That conquest occurs four years after the uh, stalemate uh, between Semeticus, Assyria, and Nabopolassar. Now, when Nineveh is destroyed, you'll notice the dark, bold arrow that's going to Haran uh, in the west. At the destruction of Nineveh, there is a remnant of the Assyrian uh, royal house and army that flees to Haran and names a nominal Assyrian king in exile named Asher-Ubalat II. Nabopolassar will march to obliterate that vestige of his former enemy by attacking Haran in 610. And you'll notice the box there above Haran, the conquest of Haran by the Babylonians and their allies in 610. That uh, campaign was uh, led by Nabopolassar himself. This sets the stage then for a confrontation. Confrontation with Egypt again. Now a confrontation not between Egypt and Assyria allied against Babylon, but Egypt against Babylon with no Assyria in the picture at all. And that confrontation will occur between Semeticus, the first son, Nico II, and Nabopolassar. That is the next picture in your pile. You see a photo there of Nico II. Now we know that towards the end of his life, Semeticus, who died in 610 B.C., 
was <clears throat> campaigning or occupied with matters in the eastern delta of the Egyptian Empire. That means close to the border of the Sinai Peninsula. <clears throat> he dies in that region. <clears throat> It may, in fact, be the case that he was marching or preparing to march north to Haran in 610 when he died. And on his death, his son, Nico II, carried on his already planned campaign to the north to <clears throat> confront uh, Nabopolassar and Babylon uh, at the location of the former garrison of the outpost of Assyria. That year in which Nico succeeds in taking his father's army north to meet Nabopolassar at Haran is 609. That's one of those key dates that we indicated in the shifting eras earlier. And so we want to now take a look at map number two. Now the second map shows you the route of Pharaoh Necho's march from Egypt to Mesopotamia. Actually, he's headed, as you can see, the end of the arrow uh, to Carchemish, uh, just west of Haran, Carchemish on the Euphrates. He's marching in this fateful year, 609 B.C. Why do I say fateful year? Because it is a pivotal year for Judah and a pivotal year for Babylon. On his way to the Euphrates, <clears throat> to Carchemish on the Euphrates, Nico kills the king of Judah. On his way back from the Euphrates, Nico deposes the king of Judah. You will notice the boxes on the map. At Megiddo, Josiah killed. At Riblah, <clears throat> Nico installs Jehoiakim in place of Jehoahaz his brother. On his way north, he kills the king of Judah. On his way south, he deposes the king of Judah. In spite of his defeat at the Euphrates by Nabopolassar, and this time Nabopolassar was joined by his son, the crown prince Nebuchadnezzar, <clears throat> Necho was defeated at Carchemish there at the top of your map. <clears throat> Nonetheless, on his way back to Egypt, he becomes the kingmaker. He becomes the client master of Judah. He becomes the man who takes kings off the throne and puts kings on the throne. He removes Jehoahaz, or Shalom, as Jeremiah will call him. He removes Jehoahaz from the throne at Riblah, and you notice the box which I've already pointed out. After a reign of only three months... Nico replaces Jehoahaz with his brother Eliakim and changes Eliakim's name to Jehoiakim. Egypt now controls Judah. Egypt now controls Judah, Syria, and Palestine. The buffer between Egypt and Babylon is now the Levant. The Levantine nations of Judah, Phoenicia, Philistia, and Syria. Egypt has a buffer, but it cost Nico part of his army. Nonetheless, Nico owns Judah and Jerusalem. But why would Josiah venture forth? 
Why would Josiah go to the pass at Megiddo? Why would Josiah go to Har-Mageddon? Mm, Armageddon. Yes, the pass at Megiddo. Armageddon. Why would Josiah go to bar the way of the Egyptian Pharaoh and his army, inviting death to himself and Egyptian domination over Judah? For after all, Josiah had ruled Judah through 31 years of relative freedom and independence from any foreign vassalage. During Assyria's decline as a result of her depletion on account of the civil war with Babylon, Josiah and Judah had prospered. Nor was Egypt a threat to Josiah's kingdom, since the rise of the Sate dynasty focused on the mechanics of reuniting Upper and Lower Egypt under Semeticus I. They were preoccupied by reunion. They weren't going to be concerned with Judah and Josiah. Josiah cleansed the temple. Josiah reformed Judah's pagan idolatry. Josiah renewed the covenant with Moses recorded in the book of Deuteronomy. As the scripture says, he did right in the sight of the Lord. 2 Kings 22, verse 2. Why would this good king do so something dumb foolish as to try to stop the Egyptian army? So why interdict this mighty Pharaoh at the pass of Megiddo? The answer is likely to preserve his freedom and independence. To preserve his nation. And to preserve her against any revival of her recent enemy, namely Assyria. For Josiah had been free of Assyrian interference and meddling throughout his reign. Josiah wants no more revival and reinforcement of a moribund Assyria, especially in Assyria, which at Haran and Carchemish is 250 miles closer to Jerusalem and Judah. Assyria had decimated Israel and leveled Samaria in 722-21 B.C. She had had harassed Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Josiah's great-grandfather, Hezekiah. Josiah wanted no instant replay of Assyrian terror. No Assyrian terror revival in the land of Judah and the city of David. He knew enough about it. But did he also seek to show his sympathy? Hmm. Did he also seek to show his sympathy and implicit endorsement of Babylon's destruction of the Assyrian Empire? Is he cheering Is he cheering as he goes to Megiddo? Is he cheering for Babylon against Egypt? And so he will be an erstwhile ally of Babylon and try to stop Babylon's enemy from going north. Perhaps. Perhaps it is as we have outlined. The scriptures are silent. The historical archaeological record is silent. We're only trying to put the pieces together of the motivation of what ended up to be a very foolish move. A self-destructive march. Syria and her allies were dead and forgotten, essentially. 
Whatever his motive, it cost him his life. It cost him his life as the mouth of God through Pharaoh, Necho himself declared, O king of Judah, said Necho, God has ordered me to hurry. Stop for your own sake from interfering with God that he may not destroy you. Second Chronicles 35, 21 and 22. Jeremiah would chant a lament for the dead King Josiah, 2 Chronicles 35.25, though no record of the content of that lament may be found in Scripture. In fact, the book of Jeremiah remarkably does not comment on the career of King Josiah, save with two verses of an accolade in chapter 22, verses 15 and 16. Jeremiah does not even comment on the career of this good king who foolishly squandered his life at the pass of Megiddo against the sovereignty of God. And that silence, that silence of Jeremiah on the career of Josiah, good, godly King Josiah, that silence baffles, baffles the commentators. And it particularly baffles the liberal, fundamentalist, higher critic commentators because they don't know what to make of it. Surely, surely there's a mistake here. Surely some editor came along after the fact and expunged Jeremiah's comments on the career of Josiah. Surely Jeremiah would not forget such a scintillating and sanctified king as Josiah, his foolish act notwithstanding. Surely he would not be forgotten by the prophet who was called during his monarchy. But do you not see that's precisely the point? The silence of Jeremiah is his epitaph for Josiah. He needs no dirge or lament. For the record says he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And Jeremiah says, I cannot add one word to that. That is sufficient for his gravestone. And yet the drama of that post-Megiddo history is reflected in the book of the prophet Jeremiah. Although he doesn't comment directly on Josiah, with the exception of the two verses in this 22nd chapter, we now want to turn to Jeremiah 22 and take a look at verses 10 through 12. Jeremiah 22, verses 10 through 12. Ben, may I ask you to read the three verses for us? Do not weep for the dead or mourn for him, but weep continually for the one who goes away, for he will never return or see his native land. 
For thus says the Lord in regard to Shalom, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, who became king in the place of Josiah his father, who went from, uh, forth from this place, he will never return there. But in the place where they led him captive, there he will die and not see his land again. All right, beginning with verse 12. Uh, Lisa, where did they lead him captive? Robert, where did they lead him captive? Who was the him? I've lost you here. Verse 11. Who is the him? What's his name? Does New International not give you his name? <laughs> What's that? Shalom. Shalom. Thank you, Cheryl. Okay, so it's Shalom. Uh, and where did they lead him, Cheryl? But that, it doesn't say. It doesn't say. No. Where did they lead him? Frank, where did they lead him? Okay. I think to Babylon. Not to Babylon. Where did they lead him, Marge? Art? Pete? In the place where they led him captive. Where was it? Who caught him? Who deposed him? The Egyptians. The Egyptians. Take a look at your map. <coughs> See? Nico coming back from the battle at Carchemish, <coughs> at Ribla. In the little box, he says he unseats him, he deposes him, <clears throat> and where does he take him? <coughs> to Egypt. Takes him down to Egypt. <clears throat> All right, now, <clears throat> verse 10. Do not weep for the dead or mourn for him. Terry, who is he talking about there? Josiah. Josiah. He's talking about Josiah, exactly. Do not mourn for the one who is dead, but weep for the one who goes away. Who's he talking about there, Christina? No. Mary Lou? Yes, Shalom. He's talking about Jehoahaz, the one who goes away. All right, contrast between father and son here. Do not weep for the one who is dead. Don't mourn for Josiah, but mourn for the one who will never return to his native land. Notice the parallel there, the one who will never return, parallel in verse 10 with verse 11. So in other words, the duplication is a reinforcement of the identity of the individual who's being described there. Now, if you look at your outline, you'll notice that I have arranged under that map number two a little bracket that begins with May, June 609 B.C. And then the siege of of the Babylonian garrison at Haran in June to August 609. And then finally, Nico's retreat to Riblo, which is also on that map, August to September in 609. Now, you may ask, how do you know that you can date these events to that Precision, because of the Chronicles of Chaldean Kings, because of this document once again. So if you notice, what we have there 
is that as Nico goes up to Haran and retreats to Haran after the siege of that Babylonian garrison outside of Haran off to Carchemish, we have a period of three months. Now, keep your finger in Jeremiah 22. Uh, Turn to 2 Kings chapter 31. 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 31. Chapter 23 of 2 Kings. Beginning to read at verse 31 and reading down to verse 34. Clay, are you willing to read for us? Do you have it? Jehoahaz? Yeah, Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother name was Hamutal. Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all of his fathers had done. All that his fathers had done. And Pharaoh Necho put him in bonds at Riblah in the land of Hamath, that he might not reign in Jerusalem, and laid on the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. How far? Verse 34, and that'll be all. And Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in the place of Josiah, his father, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. To Jehoiakim. Mm-hmm. But he took Jehoahaz. <coughs> Jehoahaz away and he came to Egypt and died there. All right, now there you have a review from Second Kings of what we've just discussed and notice the name Pharaoh Necho occurs in that narrative. And so the picture that you have in your packet of Pharaoh Necho is actually a representation of the individual that's named here in the Bible. But notice how long Jehoahaz reigned. Now Jehoahaz uh, is uh, this son of Josiah who is in Jerusalem from the time of the death of his father Josiah until the time that he is imprisoned at Riblah. How long does he reign? Verse 31. Anyone? Three months. How long did it take Nico to go up and come back from Herod? Three months. The Chronicles of the Chaldean Kings verifies the biblical record of the three-month reign of Jehoahaz. All right. <clears throat> Now, let's take a look at 1 Chronicles, chapter 3, verse 15. 1 Chronicles, chapter 3, verse 15. Those of you that are familiar with 1 Chronicles know that the first nine chapters of Chronicles are the Begatitudes. And you really have to work through them. They're there for a reason. All right, 1 Chronicles 3, 15. Kay, do you have it? Do you have a cave? Yes. yes. Would you read, please? Sure. Verse 15. Verse 15. And the sons of Josiah were Johanan. Johanan. The firstborn, and the second was Jehoiakim, 
The third was Zedekiah. Zedekiah. Oh, mine is old. Hmm. The fourth, Shalom. Shalom. Okay. All right, now we've, we've uh, encountered uh, Shalom before when we looked at 2 Samuel 22. Or 2 Jeremiah 22, I should say. But notice here that uh, we do not have Jehoahaz in 1 Chronicles 3. We have Shalom, which corresponds to Jehoahaz, which we have in Jeremiah 22. In other words, we know that Shalom and Jehoahaz are the same individual, but they have two names. All right, now, uh, when... Clay read uh, 2 Kings 23, when he came to verse 34, he indicated that Jehoiakim was uh, placed on the throne in place of Jehoahaz or Shalom. But Jehoiakim had another name as well. What was his other name? You remember? It was Eliakim. All right, Eliakim. Now, if you still have 1 Chronicles 3 open, look at verse 16. And the sons of Jehoiakim were Jeconiah, his son, and Zedekiah, his son. Now, this Zedekiah in verse 16 is not the Zedekiah in verse 15. The Zedekiah in verse 15 is a son of Josiah. The Zedekiah in 16 is a son of Jehoiakim. Who is this Jeconiah? All right, I hope you have your fingers still in Jeremiah 22. Let's take a look at Jeremiah 22, verse 24. And I need someone who has a New American Standard. Marge, Jeremiah 22, verse 24, if you'll read the verse for us. As I live, declares the Lord, even though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, wore a signet ring on my right hand, Yet, I will pull you off. All right. <clears throat> Coniah, son of Jehoiakim. Now, comparing that with 1 Chronicles 3.16, we have Jeconiah, <clears throat> son of Jehoiakim. In other words, we now know <clears throat> that Je- Je- uh, <clears throat> Jeconiah and Coniah are the same individual. <clears throat> now, turning to 2 Kings 24, verse 8. 2 Kings 24, verse 8. Scott, do you have that? I'm looking at the Hebrew text. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> Frank, do you have that? Second Kings 24, 8? Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. His mother's name was... Nahushta. Nahushta, daughter of... Elnathan. And she was from Jerusalem. Thank you. All right, now here we have another name. We have Jehoiakim who, if you look up at verse 6, is the son of Jehoiakim. And yet we've learned that the son of Jehoiakim is called Jeconiah or Coniah. And now in 2 Kings 24, 8, we have Jehoiakim, N, not M. Jehoiakim, M, before N in the alphabet. Okay, Then Jehoiakim will be first in the order of the kings of Judah, and Jehoiakim will be second in the order of kings in Judah, uh, N after M. 
<clears throat> There's one more piece to the puzzle, and that's from 2 Kings 24, verse 17. 2 Kings 24, verse 17, and I'm going to read it <clears throat> as we close out our time this evening. The king of Babylon made his uncle Mataniah king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. All right, the point of all of this is to note that all four, all four of the last kings of Judah have at least two names. Why? This isn't accidental. This is intentional. Why do they have at least two names? Well, we'll answer the question by asking, when does the name change occur? When does the change of name occur? And in two cases out of the four, we can be very precise at when the name change occurs. In the case of Eliakim and in the case of Mataniah. The Bible tells us that when Eliakim was put on the throne by Necho, his name was changed to Jehoiakim. And the Bible tells us that when Nebuchadnezzar put Mataniah on the throne, he changed his name to Zedekiah. So that we know that two of the changes in name included a change in status. In fact, a change in royal status. So what then do we do with the name Eliakim? What then do we do with the name Mataniah? It was their common name. It was their personal name. But when they were enthroned, when they were crowned king, when they were given a royal dignity, they were given a name that fit the dignity. Eliakim's change in status is a change in name from Eliakim to Jehoiakim. Mataniah's change in name is a change in status. When he becomes king, he is now Zedekiah. And that is probably why the other ones also had the double names. Shalom is actually Jehoahaz. Shalom was his common name, his personal name. But his throne name, when he is made king, is Jehoahaz. The same is true of Coniah or Jeconiah. That's his common name or his personal name. But when he is made king, on the death of his father Jehoiakim, he takes the name Jehoiakim. These are royal names indicating royal status. And so the change from the common to the regal. This is not confusion. This is not some later redactor or editor messing it all up, as the liberals love to tell us. This is simply a change in dignity. All right, any questions about that? All right. We will stop here tonight, put a little dot beside uh, that part of your outline, and we will resume next week. Not next week, I'm sorry. We resume in two weeks. Remember, we're on a bi-weekly schedule. So we will be back on the 16th of February, Thursday the 16th. Do you have any questions about anything we covered tonight or anything that you don't understand that you need me to go back over? Or questions off the wall? Scott? Any other significance of the name change in the text? Theologically? The, the names which have theophorics in that, you know, like Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, uh, Jehoahaz, uh, the names that have theophorics in it are not significant enough to suggest any particular theological drama behind it. 
At least that's the state of my own thinking at this point. Uh, I think it is it is merely a factual and historical shift in status. <clears throat> However, I won't leave aside the possibility that there is something more poignant there than that. But at this state of my own uh, characterization of the individuals, I don't think so. Marge? Could it just be when they're in another country or under a different rule? They got, like Daniel got different names, Joseph got a different name when he was in Egypt. That's a very good suggestion, Marge, and I think there's something to that. However, it is not true in the case of Coniah or in the case of uh, Shal- uh, in the case of uh, yeah, it, w- it would be true. It's not true in the case of Coniah or Je- Jeconiah, because he is he is native. It, it all occurs inside Jerusalem. There's no foreign instigator there. <clears throat> so, in other words, I'm looking for a consistent theme, and the consistent theme seems to be from common personal name to regal or throne name. Understand? I'm not I'm not making an infallible uh, dictate about this. I'm just trying to sift out what I think is underneath it. And I'm taking what is clear, namely the change in name by the uh, royal unseating and reseating, uh, as the clue to what may have happened elsewhere. All right. Well, let's close in prayer. Our Father, we realize that your hand in history is much more complex than we are often led to think. And that the scripture is full of this complexity. And part of the challenge of the book of Jeremiah is understanding the detail of this complexity and how the prophet himself speaks your word into that vacuum. We thank you for the opportunity to think through these. We particularly thank you that we're alive at this time in history when so much has been brought up from the earth in terms of archaeological detail and information for background on the book of Jeremiah and on this whole era. We thank you that we can reconstruct in a very accurate way much of the history behind these events and understand how significant your hand was, both by providence and by direct intervention, in the life of the nations and the life of your people. And then we understand, Lord, how in the fullness of times, the eschatological Jeremiah comes into history, the history of Judah and the history of the nations. Enable us, Lord, to see Jesus more clearly and to love him more dearly. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.